wicked, wicked fly. This is your summer. That means Six Flags in the taste of an ice-cold Coca-Cola. We're talking thrilling coasters, delicious burgers, yes. real moments together, and this. Coke is summer refreshment when you need it most, so you can hop on another ride or race down a slide at the water park. Six Flags and Coca-Cola, come make it yours. Visit sixflags.com slash coke to save up to $20 on passes, plus daily tickets starting at $34.99. This is Karen with NewClevelandRadio.net, and it is time for Avoid the Maze. And a couple of weeks ago, I had Brent Cassidy on, and we talked about the journey that he took. And we'll sort of touch on that a little bit. But I asked him afterwards, I said, what did your family really go through? Your wife, you had a wife who stood behind you despite the odds. And I really think the odds were against you, Brent, that, you know, any beautiful woman, even as much in love as she may have been with you, hey, I don't want any part of this. I want, mm -hmm. I want to go on and take care of myself. But Julie, you didn't do that. You stood beside him. So welcome to Avoid the Maze. And maybe you can help us all understand what it is about acceptance and forgiveness, because obviously you had to go through those stages. Well, you know, uh, first, thanks for having me, Karen. I appreciate it. Um, to be honest, I just never really thought about it as accepting and forgiving. Um, our journey that we were on with Brent you know, and his business and how things came down, um, it evolved over so many years, you know, from I think it started in 2007. And by the time he went to prison, it was 2014. Right. So, January 2014. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So um, I saw him, you know, we, we struggled together the whole way through. I saw how he fought through each challenge, trying to save his company. Um, there, there's so many deep layers. I don't even know if I would have time to get into it, but I watched over the years of our marriage, how proud he was of the business he built, how he was helping families. Um, and I also saw his amazement or shock when in the 11th hour, he was going to lose it all. And um, seeing that devastation and, you know, there was just, I, I didn't really think about it for a minute. I, I love him and I know that he's a good, wonderful person and I just, you know, I choose him. So that's, I, and I, and I, she's a rock. <laughs> well, and I love how you say that, you know, that you knew the good in him. Okay. Right. And even though there were some bad things that happened, it really wasn't Brent that you went out looking to do bad things. They happened. Right. Um, yeah. And as we shared before we went online today, many of us make very similar mistakes. We, we see an opportunity. We're told it's okay. It's legal. It's, you know, you're not going to hurt anybody. And so you start following it. And then all of a sudden you hit yourself in the face and you go, wait a second, what did I do wrong? Uh, or somebody else brings that up to you and you go, but I was told it wasn't wrong. So what the fact that you're sharing this, I think is important because I think we all have to be a little bit more aware um, and better educated to some degree. So one of the things that Brent shared with me, Julie, is that, um, you know, his father had also uh, made some business mistakes in his life. Um, and yet here you married into the family. Many young women would have been saying, hey, you know, I don't want to get involved with a family like that. Uh, even though it may have been done as innocently um, so what made you think that, Hey, this is still good. And this guy, Brent, besides being good looking, um, he's smart <laughs> and lovable. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm, I met Brent when I was 13. So, um, 
you know, we grew up together. I didn't know at the time when I met him at such a young age, but I found out pretty shortly after, I would say by the time I was 15 or 14, yeah. I don't know, that his dad had been to prison. But you'd have to know his dad. Um, he was a very gregarious, charming um, you know, person you wanted in your corner. He could, you know, he just had a really good way about him. So he really sold himself really well. And he made it sound like what happened to him in his early 30s was just that, just kind of a small misstep. And um, we just really didn't think much about it. My parents, my parents and Brent's parents were very close friends. And we, you know, we just didn't really think much about it at all. Okay. So this all started happening, you said, or became an issue in 2007. And your daughters were young at the time. Um, how was that for you in the community, knowing that, you know, things were being said about your husband, his business, um, and yet you still wanted to be out there and do normal things? So see from somebody else's perspective how it would look like it would be a lot, but somehow we just managed. You know, I think we had a lot of really good friends who supported us, the girls' school, the faculty, everybody, you know, supported us and wanted the end result to be a good one for Brent because at the time we were fighting the charges, you know, sure. the, the indictment. And um so we just had, we were just very fortunate with um, friends that supported us. And I just always knew that I surrounded myself with the support and I just didn't really worry about people that didn't support us. I felt probably didn't before this happened. So I just didn't wallow in that really and wanted to make sure my girls saw us as fighters and not hiding. And we just went about our way because perception is reality if people think you're okay then it's true doing okay yeah yeah and i think you know julie's so so right about the fact that we had a strong group of people that were supporting us and and uh one thing that we did stay away from as a family whether it be newspaper whether it be tv we just didn't engage in that because there wasn't any way there wasn't we knew what the narrative was. It wasn't something we wanted to read. It wasn't something we wanted to hear. And we talked about that as a family. So we said, we're going to, we're going to wall ourselves off from that. We're going to survive with the people who are supporting us. And, and Julie's right about the fact we, whether it was school administrators or coaches that the kids had um, and, and, and friends, um, they were there supporting. So that we felt that, that, that felt, uh, made us feel strong at the time. Sure. They gave us strength. So, you know, as I look at your story and I've heard a few others where people did not have that support, okay? Yeah. They were fighting totally on their own. Um, and because they were fighting on their own, they didn't look innocent. They didn't look like somebody that you wanted to support. The sad part is, is that you know, some of us have that personality that as soon as something bad happens, um, we only see the negative. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like the two of you were finding all those positive things out on the horizons. And that's what you were going for. Is that correct? Yeah, we seeked it. Uh, you know, we were, we kind of surrounded ourselves with it. It, it, that's what made us feel like we could take the steps that we were taking to get through it. And I think, you know, Karen, you bring up a good point that, you know, Julie and I being able to walk through it together, uh, you know, so many people do split up. And uh, when I went to prison, that was one of the things that the guys told me when I got there is, yeah, well, she'll come see, you know, a couple months and, you know, they leave after that. 
that's a really scary thing to hear when you're in prison because yeah. you're seeing that actually happen. And I, you know, actually, I I had that conversation with Julie that I'm, you know, I know that you'll probably want to move on, and that's what everybody does. And and it scared me because that was my, you know, we were we were getting through this together. And I I you know interviewed a guy yesterday that super nice guy, big storyteller, big home builder guy, and and. Uh, his world came crashing down and uh, he had been in for a couple of months and he had lost weight and he knew that his wife was going to come visit him. He wanted to look good and he was all excited. And when he got to the visiting room, she had divorce papers. <gasps> so it was wow. like, what, and we talked through that, you know, how do you get through that? Cause that's, sure. that's another layer of loss in a bad place. And uh, you know, Julie and I have always talked about, I think the way that we stayed together is we stayed connected and our, our new normal was Julie coming, us visiting, her bringing the kids. And as a marriage, that's how we stayed plugged in. We, if I, you know, if I saw Julie once a year, that would have probably have been a, a devastation to our marriage because we couldn't stay plugged in and talk about, you know, what's going on with the kids, what's going on with your work? How, you know, are you, are you getting through this or that? And then we talk about my stuff. And oddly enough, that's what you do in a marriage. We were doing it just in a very, very strange environment. Absolutely. So Julie, what was it like for you? Obviously you drove him to the prison. You spent the night together in a hotel trying to feel normal, okay, knowing that the next morning um, you were going to get to a doorway and he was going to keep going and you couldn't even go in. And now you had to sit around and wait until you were allowed to contact him. And I don't know how long that normally takes, but listening to some of the podcasts, it sounds like once you went in those doors, Brent, you have no idea what your next step is. And not everybody's step is the same. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. True. Yeah. That's what I was hearing on today. The podcast I was listening to today. And it was like, wow. I mean, like, don't we want people to survive? If so, why aren't we preparing them for what's going to happen? Um, because not preparing people can make it worse. Yeah. So Julie, were you prepared at all? Did anybody sit down with you and say, okay, this is what you can expect or not expect? Not really. I just, I was so afraid when we left him there that day that I didn't know if it would be, you know, 10 days, a month, three hours. I mean, I just had no earthly idea. And we were, were four and a half hour drive away. So we left him and you know, saw him walk in this big, huge, ominous building. I was just—I felt sick. It was just terrible. And um, you know, driving back, we—I was with Brent's mom and brother, and we—I I don't really think we hardly spoke. None of us could really um, could really even really think of anything. Crying. It was terrible. But we got home, and I would say within maybe two hours. Not even yeah, it's probably six, six yeah, and a half hours yeah. later. Um, well, six and a half hours for him, but maybe a couple hours after I was home, the phone rang and it was him. So that was a big relief that he had made it down to the camp. So he was not in the medium facility that where we left him. And he and he said the first thing he said was, "We're going to be all right. I've I've got my um, your counselor was." I forgot Mr. Mr. Goodwin. Mr. Goodwin. And I'm in his office and I'm going to be able to do this. I, oh, Brent's always positive. Yeah, we're going to be fine. And, you know, so I felt really, so then I thought, okay, you know, and then he said, we'll get the visiting papers going. And this was a Monday or a Tuesday. It was a Tuesday. Yeah. And um, that way the visiting papers would get through and then I would come that, that weekend. So then I just knew I had only four or five days and then I'll be there. Which, That's sort of how I managed in little weekly increments. 
And the thing that the thing that's you know when we talk about you don't know, uh, you know I had I had heard from somebody that you can make a phone call because I didn't know how to work the phones and the phones in the prison system you have to have you have to record your voice and then it has to you have to put in this code and there's a whole thing that you've got to do to. So I knew I couldn't do that because I wasn't even, I didn't have a code. I didn't have anything. So I asked one of the guys, I said, is it true that you can go and make a phone call down in the counselor's office? I said, well, I, I guess. And so I went down there. Thing that happened though that was interesting was, is that I felt so good after meeting Mr. Goodwin, who was my counselor, because the other counselor was a monster. He'd been around for 30 years. He hated everything. He hated life. He definitely hated inmates. And so the next day I got, um, I was excited that, that Mr. Goodwin said that I could get the visiting papers and um, Swanson was the only one there. And he said, what are you doing here? And he said, aren't you new? And I said, yeah, I'm new. And he said, what, what do you want? And I said, well, Mr. Goodwin said that I could get these visiting papers so I can have my family visit. And he said, you're new. He said, you won't be seeing them for two or three months. He said, get out of here. So... All of a sudden, I was here, and now I'm here because what am I, what am I, that's it. And I walked around, you know, I, you know, this is my second day there, and, and I think, oh, my gosh, that's, this has really changed. Like, overnight, everything's like, I'm not going to see Julie for two or three months. So I gained up the courage to look around and see Mr. Goodwin, and he said, come on in, Ray. And I said, it's, a, it's Brent, and he. It was the second time he called me. Um, uh, what's his name? Ray Romano. Ray Romano. Oh, <laughs> yes, you do look like him. <laughs> so he said, "No." He said, "Here's the deal, Brent." He said, "I'm your counselor. Don't talk to him." He said, "If you see him, don't talk to him. I'm your counselor." He said, "I'm going to get everything taken care of from here on out. Don't talk to Swanson." So. From that point forward, I avoided Swanson like the plague, and he did have one other thing that he really messed up for Julie and I, but uh, he was just a, he, anything that Swanson could do, he would do it just to, to, to mess with your mind. Is he still there? He finally retired. I outlasted <laughs> him. He, he, I think he went for 30 years or so, but Julie and I had, just to talk about Swanson just for a second. Um, they had come and it was Carly's, my middle daughter's birthday. And this was in May. All my daughter's birthdays are in May. So we were all excited. You know, the girls were all going to be there. And, and it was the end of the month. And so Julie and the girls show up. And sometimes you could kind of see from the prison into the visiting room, you know, as people come in. And I didn't see them sitting down. And so... Swanson told me to go back into the cafeteria. He didn't want to be standing at the door. So I went in and Swanson went back down to the visiting room, came back and he said, Cassidy, you've been hit. I said, what, what do you mean I've been hit? He said, he said, uh, I sent your family home. I said, why? Cause he knew that I liked these visits. I'd been there long enough that he saw these right. visits coming. He said, yeah, he said, you didn't have enough points for a visit today. And I said, oh my God, I said, it's my daughter's birthday. And he said, isn't that the first birthday you're going to be missing? You, you need to man up. And I, I swear, Karen, I could have taken him and thrown him through the wall, which he would have loved for me to do because that right. would have been a, a shot and gone into the hole and all the other things that happened. But those are the type of things that they do. Even if you're just trying to not pay, you know, you're trying to keep a low profile. And that was the one thing he saw that I really thrived on was my family coming. And he just sent him home. Wow. And it was four and a half hour drive. Well, nine hours. So what really disturbs me as an outsider is that, yes, there are people in prison, federal prison serving time. And yes, you know, if you're convicted, you should serve the time. Okay. That's, that's our law. But I don't understand why we have to have this mentality to destroy you when you're there. If we're going to send people to prison, we have to do some sort of reform because if not, and we make them worse, and that's what it sounds like Swanson really was doing. 
because if he really would have pushed your buttons oh, yeah. a little bit more, okay? And so I'm sure every time you'd be sent out to the hole, you're going to lose more and more points, more credibility. Right. So I know you know, we need and you also you also get the feeling when you're a family member and you're you know trying to have the visits and you know that's what you live for is that three hours that you get a week you know to to, to be with your loved one but you really get the feeling from the um, visiting police or visiting cop and the COs that correctional officers that they don't really want family to come and visit. They don't encourage, they have this point system. So you don't, you can't come very often. And when you do come, they, you know, they have all these rules set so they can really turn you away. They can say you don't have points, even if you've, you've calculated. And I know full well, we had the <laughs> Julie's good at calculating points. <laughs> you know, and, and they can just tell you, no, you don't. And so you have no recourse. So they don't encourage families to support their loved ones that I it just shocked me I mean yeah that totally shocks because that's what rehabilitates them is you know to know that people love them and they can come out and you know that their family's waiting for them and you just saw time and time again where that's just not it's not the it might be the perception it, it might be what you read about that they're encouraging this but that is not the fact. Well, and the the thing about that too, and, and there was a guy, um, Officer Hudson, who who was there when we first got there, and he had that belief that Julie's talking about as as the visiting CEO cop. He he wanted families to be there, and he didn't really he didn't really keep the time and the points, and so we we kind of got used to that. But when when it got when the word got out that Hudson really wasn't following the system. They pushed him aside and he never, I think one other time over the three years he was in that room, but they pushed him out and um, they put the people in there that they wanted to make sure that they, you know, somebody would show up and they, uh, they had khaki pants on or something. Uh, they'd send them out. They would, they tell me they need to get uh, different pants or you can't have a visit. I mean, there were things that just happened where, you know, as a, It'd be like you, Karen, showing up and not knowing, and it didn't even matter if you did know. If if a certain cop was on the on the uh, in the visiting room and they didn't want you to see your husband or your son or your brother, they could just say you just leave. I went one for one of our anniversaries, and the same thing happened. I drove all the way there for our twenty fifth. Twenty fifth is a great twenty fifth. Yeah. Wow! <laughs> I drove all the way, and they said we didn't have points. Which and I, and I had to leave. That was uh, a scare, probably the scariest day mentally that I had in prison because I had worked this out. It was at the end of the month. Um, and this scary guy, Mac, tall guy, low voice, he was uh, intimidating. And the last thing I ever wanted to do was run into him. But he happened to be working what they call the bubble, where you can see the glass and see out into the hallways. And I forced myself to go and just because I knew this stuff happened. I said, Mac, is there any way that you can check my visiting points for him? Because my wife's coming. It's our anniversary. I don't want her to get turned away. So, you know, that's the last thing they want to do. And he you know, goes and punches up the stuff. And he said, no, he said, you've got three or four points, whatever it was. He says, you're good. So the next day, you know, I come back early from my, my prison job and get on my better looking khakis. <laughs> so, um, again, I see Julie come in. I see this one cop that was, she was just a horrible, horrible person. And she turns Julie away, says, I don't have enough points. And so I go around to the side, not even thinking, not even thinking. I go down the hallway, go out the doors and there's the fence. There's two no fences with a bob wire, but you can see the parking lot. And I said, Julie, what's, what's going on? She said, they say you're out, we're out of points. And I said, well, I know we're not because I checked it with Mac. He's working. I'll, fi I'll get it fixed. So I go up there. And by the time I get there, I said, Mac, they said, they so Mac goes into the visiting room. And by the time he comes back, he said, you're in a whole heap of shit, Cassidy. 
He said, I want you to go sit down right there until I tell you different. And I sat there for three and a half hours. Julie was told that she was trespassing on the parking lot. But they, when, he, when he told me to go sit down, he said, I could give you a level one shot right now for unauthorized uh, communication with the public. <gasps> he said, I can send you to the whole, he said, maybe 30, 45 days if I want to. He said, I want you to go sit down and think about that. The other thing I was thinking about is what in the world is Julie thinking? And I hadn't gone into and been applied into RDAP yet that was supposed to give me a year off. If I had a level one shot, that year was gone. So I'm sitting there for three and a half hours, can't say anything to anybody on this bench, thinking I've just lost a year of my prison life. And Julie has no idea what's going on. And she's driving back. And it was the most torturous mind uh, spin that I've ever been through. And so the finally, after three and a half hours, he calls me back in. He says, well, Cassidy, I've had time to look up your, um, your case. He says, huh, it's a big CEO, multimillionaire. You think you can call the shots around here, huh? I said, no, sir. He said, well, he said, uh, well, you can't. But he said, um, I'm thinking that uh, this three and a half hours has been enough for you. He said, go on, get out of here. Call your wife. So that whole three and a half, four hours, and then that was just your mind and your body and your stress and everything is just into, you just zip into a whole nother world that you don't ever think you can go to. I was trying to prepare for 30 to 45 days in the hole, you know, and Never in my wildest dream, Karen, did I even think about saying something to Julie in the parking lot. I walked out of those doors every day to my job a mile away to the uh, food warehouse. So I, I wasn't inside those fences very often. So I wasn't even thinking about that as a Got it. shot. Yeah. Never crossed my mind. Julie, what was that ride home like for you? Because again, it's your anniversary. It's tough enough that you were going to spend it at the prison. Okay. And then. Um, I was just scared, Karen, to be honest. I was scared of what was going to happen to Brent. That was mostly what, you know, I, when you, you, you just have no control. That's the biggest thing that's so difficult. No, you can't call. There's nobody, there's nothing you can do. And I just thought, well, I, you know, my only thought, I just have to drive back home. But luckily, my daughters were at um, the University of Missouri in Columbia. So that was maybe a two and a half hour drive. So I thought, well, if I can just get there, you know, then I'll, I'll stop and see them. And hopefully I'll hear something from Brent, you know, between now and then. Luckily, luckily, I guess, no, on the other side of Columbia, I yeah. think I, I heard from him. but. Yeah. But that's just part of that's just part of the experience, and it's you know I think when I see anything on television or I see other wives and children having to go through it, I think that it's just so sad that it has to be that way. There there has to be that element of intimidation, and not just for the inmates. I mean that's one thing, but it happens to the family. They treat you the same way they treat the person that's incarcerated and so they treat you as though you know you've committed crimes and you shouldn't come and you don't deserve to see your loved one and you can't wear this and you can't I, you don't have points and it's just <laughs> I can't describe it but it's, it was that was a really difficult part I mean every every time I came to visit I was always scared I was always I nervous that I was going to be turned away or that Brent wasn't going to come out or. Yeah. That, that, that was every time. Every time. I, yeah. I, yeah. And yet, you know, when we see this in movies or TV shows, you know, we think that's just some hype, you know, yeah. to excite us, um, you know, to get us more into the, to the show, but yeah. obviously it's not in oh, no. the way in the way you're talking it sounds like mr goodwin was really an exception to the rule 
that. Yeah. And to me, again, um, and I'm hoping that people are listening to this and understand that, you know, prison reform is something that we need to start looking at. Um, You know, again, I'm not saying that when people do something against the law, they shouldn't have to pay for it. But the question really is, if they don't learn from that experience, if they're always, you know, hyper vigilant about everything that they have to do, they're they're not going to reform. You know, obviously you have a very um, in-depth personality, Brent, that you sort of knew, hey, I have to be a good boy every single day. And even when I'm not, I have to even be good. Okay. Um, But that's not natural for most of us to live like that 24 seven. It's, it's tough. I mean, the, and I think one of the things, Karen, that you're talking about is I think it goes, first of all, you, you said earlier that there needs to be things that, that help somebody get to the next step while they're in prison. And they used to have that. And uh, then there was the complaints, well, why are you spending money on prisoners? You know, why you should be spending it on the outside. And so they stripped all that out back uh, 25, 30 years ago. So there were actual things there like welding and things that you could get, you know, so you could go get it. They took all that out. So they just made it to where um, you were just like cattle. They, you know, they basically were just storing you until you were done. But the biggest thing that I think that is, and I, you know, I've, you get to know these people because you live with them, they're with you. And then you, you know, for me, I talk to people as they're out. The tough thing about it is, is that I've been lucky from a standpoint that I've had people when I've come out that have believed in me, stood by me and given me opportunities. The thing that a inmate and an ex-felon is looking for when they get out is they're just trying to get back into society. I'm not talking about the child molesters or the violent person. I'm just talking about the nonviolent guy that, you know, there was a mistake made. He ended up in a situation where he served time. And what I saw the other day, I was reading the paper where they, they're having such a hard time right now hiring people in general. And so they decided to have a job fair for ex-felons. And there were all these people there and they said, wow, it's really amazing. There were some really qualified people here and they were just so excited to be given a real opportunity for a real job. That's the thing, the opportunity aspect of, you know, having to check the box on a job interview. That's a tough interview. You know, nobody really, they don't want to hire an ex-felon if they don't have to. Being able to go get someplace to live, they can discriminate against that. So there, those two things, a job and a place to live, if you can't get into society and be a productive person, then yes, that 75% starts making sense because you never were able to step into it. You were only pushed back. And I think that's the tweak that really has to happen. And I'm, you know, for the people that, and a lot of these people that are in the federal system are drug dealers. Um, there's some that are the high kingpins, but most of them are just guys who are either they were using and they got caught or whatever the case might have been because it was, you know, across anything that comes in from drugs is going to be across right. uh, state lines. These people are pretty smart. And if given the opportunity in another world, another business, uh, they can be very productive, very productive, just an opportunity. And that I, I see that from my side because I've been given the opportunity uh, I've got Jose that I work for and, and he stayed in touch with me when I was in Leavenworth and we knew each other before I was there. And, uh, and he's given me an opportunity here to do things that I know how to do. You know, my, my job is to help uh, real estate agents look at their, their business as a business, not just sales, get up and try to sell, but actually how do you focus on your business and then grow it? So, but he's given me that opportunity and I appreciate that because that's, I feel like I'm able to use my brain for experiences that I already know to help other people. And that's, that's what I think there should be out there for other people. Absolutely. Um, and I'm sure as I listen to more of your podcast, I'm going to hear the brilliance in a lot of the people that you're interviewing that 
um, you know, bad things can happen to good people and good yeah. people can do some bad things, but we have to learn from it. Um, I met somebody not too long ago and um, I wouldn't have believed the home life that they had come from. Um, he's a young kid. He looks like, you know, you know, he's wearing the most expensive tennis shoes and, you know, has a car and has all these things as a young kid. And one day uh, he sort of let loose at work um, yelling at a customer because his buttons got pushed. And um, he said some things that only a young teenager would say because didn't have the smarts not to. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got in trouble and he was taken away. And my heart went out to him because he had shared to me what his family life was like. And this is how he knew how to react to things. And nobody had taught him any differently. Um, and I keep saying, if somebody doesn't take him under their wings and teach him, you know, the things that are right and the things that are wrong, 17 years, he's learned all the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And yet he sees them as being right. And again, I see that, you know, when we talked about your story the last time, you know, you didn't see the things that you were doing as being a problem. They right. were business choices, business things to do. Um, so going back to, you know, you're looking forward to your visits. I can understand how that can help the time go forward. If you can see it on a calendar next week, I'm going to see my wife next week. I'm going to see my husband, you know, in two weeks. And, you know, I've done that countdown for a lot of things in my life, which most people have. But when you found out that it was close to Brent being able to come home. Um, and I know that they don't give you an exact date. Usually they just sort of tell you that you're probably going to be going home soon. And soon could be months from now. How was that for you, Julie? Well, we were fortunate, I think, maybe a couple of months before release, we got a, a date. So we just were so excited and just lived for that day. I just remembered thinking that how slow those eight weeks once we found out the day. <laughs> oh my gosh, like just the like clock. then it was like it got really slow. Um, but I was just, you know, I went shopping for him, <laughs> the Sam's and got like all new socks and underwear. <laughs> I don't know, just was so fun to like buy him, you know, some just a few new things and got his bag ready because we knew that he was we would be picking him up and taking him to the halfway house which you know you we were excited initially that we knew he was going to be released from Leavenworth but we also knew he wasn't released in entirety so we knew we were going to have a couple of really great hours together in the car and maybe get him a some Taco Bell I think that's what he <laughs> said he wanted to eat and but we knew that and then we would come back and hopefully see that some family at the house for an hour. I don't even think it took an hour because we had to get to the halfway house. So that is, so then it was like, oh, so you, all of this excitement and then kind of. Yeah. Cause the halfway house is, is um, that's another thing that is part of the system, but it's, it's not really there for the purposes it was meant to be there. Um, the Dismas house, this was a halfway house. Uh, it's in the worst area of town. Uh, all the gunshots and all the bad things happen right there on that block. And that's where the halfway house is. And you've got a hundred, 150 guys housed there. And it's a lockdown situation. I mean, you, you can't get past the front door and the glass area and everything unless you earn yourself a pass out. And, you know, it was, I'm coming from Leavenworth, which was horrible, filthy, bad, black mold, uh, you know, just bad, but it was a lot better than the halfway house. And wow. the halfway house was the dirtiest, filthiest, bed bug ridden place that I've ever been. In all custody levels. 
all yeah. custody levels, meaning from maximum to, to the minimum. But there really wasn't any reason for a lot of those guys to be there because they had a place to go. They, they had either acquired a job, they had a place to live either with their parents or their wife or their girlfriend or whatever the case was. But they get 25% of your gross pay there. So they want to keep you there as long as they can. And it's really a rigged system that does no good. And here's the other thing that it does. They tell you, because some of those guys were, were you know, saying, you, you've got to go get a job. That's one of the things with a case manager. Sure. You've got to go get a guy. You've got to get employed, which you want to. Problem is, is that they put so many restrictions on you that a guy could go and interview for a job, but he might not be able to get to that job because the probation officer is making him go over here. And then they'll get a fire him from this job because he doesn't have the, he doesn't show up on time. And it's, it's only because the probation officer has him doing something that's totally unrelated and useless just because it's a power move. So it's so, when you see it up close in the system, you're like, Oh man, this thing's so broken. And really it's, you know, with the podcast that I've been doing, one of the things I hope comes out of it, I hope people can see how, you know, you can adapt and survive and, and get over your, your worst fears. But secondly, I hope that there's create some type of platform where people have a little bit better understanding of just how difficult it is and how broken the system is because nobody really wants to pay attention to it. Right. These are ex-felons, you know, get, get your act together, you know, get right. But it's, this, it's the layers of all that that are just not good. You know, I taught at a um, technical college that was out in the suburbs here in Cleveland. And probably 50% of my students um, had spent some time either in county lockup, state, or federal. Um, my husband also taught there. And when I was offered the job, I felt safe because my husband working there, he was safe. I had met many of the students, but that's what I was learning with the students too, that some of them were not coming to class because lockdown was at a certain time and they had class and yet they got approved for those classes in those times. Right. Um, and so a lot of them would contact me and say, you know, I can come at five o'clock. I can't come to class at seven o'clock. And I'd say, okay, I'll leave all your courseware out on the table. You take it with you the, tomorrow when you come in at five o'clock. So they didn't sit in class. Um, I had to assume that they were doing their own work. Um, but I wanted to give them that opportunity because here they were actually taking out loans at very high rates and they wanted to get the education. Um, so I agree with you. That's why as I'm hearing your story, um, yes, you know, Jose has done marvelous by you, but he knew yeah. you. Okay. And he knows what you can do. Um, you may have been some other guy off the street and, you know, he probably would have had to think twice because until you get to know somebody, that's how you have to build trust. Yeah. I, find your story beautiful that you've met as young kids and have, you know, pursued your life together. In today's world, we don't see that even under the best of circumstances. So Julie, I have to ask you, what is it so special about this guy that you fell in love with him when you were a kid and you're still holding <laughs> on to him? Well, first of all, he's, um, just have got a really good heart and that's what I've always loved about him he's just a really good-hearted person and always um you know wants to do good and you you everybody any anybody and everybody who knows Brent would say that and this whole portion of our life that we've been through that has been so difficult um I don't think anybody would have seen it coming not even Brent and, you know, he's loving, he's kind, he's a wonderful father, he's, um, he's fun, <laughs> and very positive, very positive 
person always, you know, even after all he's been through, sometimes he'll say things, you know, like real positive. And I'll think, how can he think positive after all he's been through? You know, he still sees good in life and in people. And he could be very jaded and very um, negative and feel like a victim. But he, he's just um, really handsome. So. <laughs> yes, he is. Absolutely. Why did you think I want to keep doing these? <laughs> yeah. I got I to mean, I flip this back, though, Karen, because Julie, you know, we had a wonderful life. Our, you know, we got three beautiful daughters and, and, and I was building a business and, and from building a business and the business getting bigger, we had nicer and nicer things. And, and Julie did a, has always done such a great job of making the house a home. And um, so what I look at Julie is, is that there's so many ways that she could have just said, this is overwhelming. This is too much because it wasn't me that lost everything. It was our family that lost everything. Right. You know, the kids, Julie, Julie, had been a, a stay-at-home mom and was really involved with everything the kids were doing from the time they ended up in nursery school all the way through. And that rug was pulled out from under her. And she ends up working first at uh, the, the cemetery that I owned. Um, and then she ends up working at the car dealership. Uh, and then, you know, she's an office manager now and does a great job, but she was pulled back into a world of, surviving without me and in a, a very unfamiliar world. And for me, I always look at it from the girls also did that, but I think it was the role model of the mom that if she would have folded up and she would have gone into a cocoon or fetal position, I think that would have affected our girls. Oh, absolutely. So I always look at that as just something that was something very special in the two of you. And that's what I saw when we did the last podcast. That's what I'm hearing in your podcast. Um, you know, there's, you're not judgmental. You understand that we all come from a different um, culture of some sort. We all see things differently, but you know what? If we can be kind to each other and support each other, we can all make it. And um, just watching your relationship, my husband and I have not been through the same scenario. Um, our road together for 37 years has been like a roller coaster. And there were times that friends and family said, what are you two doing together? <laughs> and the answer was, because we're meant to be on this together. And yeah. yes, it may not feel good today, but tomorrow is another day. Uh, the sun will, you know, come up in the same way. We'll go down in the same way, but it will be different. And I think that's what the two of you have seen that even though it's did different. You ever see, did you ever see the movie called Honey, a family? Oh, I think it is called, um, uh, it's a Christmas movie with Nicolas Cage and Tina and Leone called Sam. Um, it's where he he's he's got everything and he gets to go back to um, his old girlfriend because he left and went. What is but the anyways, name of that? It was one of our favorite movies, <laughs> yeah. but we can't. But anyways, in the movie, um, she says, I choose you. Yes. And I, I always I think of that so often. And I've told my girls that, you know, I think in today's time, we're from um, Humbling here, but friends or people would say, Are you, you going to stay with friends? Are you going to? I'm just so impressed. You know, you stayed. And I would think, I would never have thought for a second to not stay with friends because I chose him. You know, like it's, it's a commitment. It's something that you, it's not something that if life didn't turn out exactly how you thought it was going to look, well, I'm just going to leave that person. I just, that doesn't make sense in my in my mind how I guess if you thought there was some real wrongdoing or 
some sort of personality flaw that life going forward wasn't going to change. Maybe there was some alcohol or drug abuse or something. I mean, I'm not judging people that sure. leave because I totally understand their circumstances where you can't stick, stick it out. But um, to just automatically, because life was going to look different, I just would not, I couldn't. Well, and surprisingly, I, I think about it, you know, we, our life is so different than when we, you know, were 14 years ago, but, you know, we're, you know, material things we've had. And I guess when you have money, you don't think about that as a concern. So that's not a stress, but you, one thing that you do learn out of all this is, is that what is, what makes you happy is family and, and, you know, having your time uh, to do what you want to do. And, and, you know, I think we do a lot, of, we do a lot of that together. I mean, just walking the dogs and catching up at night, you know, going to the park, going yeah. to hikes or what, but it's, it's not a complicated, um, busy life, but I, you know, I think after everything that we've been through, I would say that, um, we're, we're very happy regardless of what happened right. <laughs> because it was quite a deal. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Well, I know I will be thinking of you and your family next week for Thanksgiving because I have learned so much from you. I've learned what, you know, from your daughters, just the way you've talked about them. And I'm hoping our listeners will just be a little kinder, nicer, open up their arms and realize that, you know, mistakes we have to learn from them mm-hmm. and so we have to help each other and uh i'm certainly learning from your podcast brent so tell everybody how they can find it well oh thank you karen for allowing me to do that uh it's nightmare success in and out uh it's the the podcasts are on uh, spotify and apple and i think of uh, a few other platforms but those are the main ones and if anybody wants to and you, you can find karen on my my uh, <laughs> uh website at brentcasty.com so uh, i appreciate you letting me do a little plug there karen no absolutely there you know you may go to it and say well you know why do i want to hear about this ex-felon the ex-felon could be your neighbor could be your brother could be your father could be your husband and understanding and listening to the stories you know it's opening up my heart to realize that I don't have to be so fearful. Do we have to be cautious in this world? Yes. Yeah. I think we can, you know, get rid of some of the fear. Unless you're in Leavenworth and you have one of these uh, guys <laughs> that uh, tells you you have no points for a visitor. So. No points. No point. The name of the movie is Family Man. Family Man. Family Man. Family Man. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one for the holidays. Okay. It's well, kind you of know, a modern. Uh, um, uh, it's a wonderful life. Well, I love Nicolas Cage. So, you know, He's good uh, it. something that we're going to have to watch. And again, thank you so very much. And we'll catch up with you again real soon. Okay. Thank Thanks, you. Karen. Take Appreciate care. it. Yeah. Bye-bye now.